Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your DJ, your MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. And joining me is a guest co-host. He's the man who I may hate him sometimes, but I'll always love him. Wow. Here's my brother from another mother. Here's Jeff Johnson. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on again, Ben. Absolutely. So for this episode, we have a special guest. He's been in a few of my favorite bands like R.E.M. and Big Star, but I will always associate it with him as one of the halves of my favorite band from the Pacific Northwest. The one of three halves of the Posies. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> So please welcome to the podcast, Ken Stringfellow. Here I am. Hi, guys. Did I, did I shortchange Frankie a little bit on that? No, I mean, Frankie understands. I mean, he came in much later, we, and he's fantastic. Uh, but yeah. the, the band is formed by John and myself, and so, yeah, you, you're, you're forgiven. Great. Appreciate that. <laughs> so, so the premise of our podcast, fairly simple. We talk about music, but as we do at the beginning of each podcast episode, we ask the all-important question. So I'm going to start with Jeff. So what T-shirt are you wearing? Uh, I'm in mourning for the loss of live shows, and uh, so I'm wearing my Wilco 2016 shirt. Uh, they, they've had three shows canceled on me uh, in this last month, or in the next month, so uh, I'm wearing my disappointment right now. Mm. Yeah. And that's my, self, that's my self-medication is uh, shows, uh, so yeah. it's a little disappointing right now. Absolutely. How about you, Ken? You wearing a t-shirt? Well, I kind of, because of, uh, they're not particularly flattering. Um, I've kind of stopped wearing, t- wearing t-shirts, I have to say. Although I got to say with, um, the fact that, uh, we're in self isolation and groceries are scarce, uh, I feel like I've lost a little weight, so I might go back to it, but I'm, I'm wearing a polo shirt today. So I do have a good, a great Wilco shirt. One of my favorite t-shirts that I hung on to even as T-shirts looked less and less flattering on my dad bod was a Wilco shirt they gave me from uh, 2003 when they were on tour with R.E.M. It's got the tiger on it with the kind of Chinese lettering on the top. You know the one? Yeah, that's a great one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, uh, I'm Jeff, I'm, I'm like you. I'm kind of in mourning. I uh, was supposed to see Brian Fallon uh, last week, and uh, that, of course, is not happening. So... I am wearing my Brian Fallon T-shirt, so hopefully he reschedules because uh, really would uh, really would love to see him in concert. So we're all going to reschedule. I just want to say that live music is not dead. Like we're going to come back. It it just everybody has to be patient. But I, I feel those same apocalyptic thoughts and imagine it's my livelihood. Um, you know, and I have shows. I've canceled everything this month and everything in April, um, principal precaution, but I haven't canceled May yet just because, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I, I want us to get back. I want to do what's right for everybody and be what, and be safe, but I don't want to be, I don't want to give in to despair. Right. It's necessary right now, but it is, it's disappointing, you know, when you can't connect that way. And, and, uh, for you, obviously as a career, uh, it's, it's probably scary. Well, you know, I think, I mean, if we're going to get into to that aspect, you know, there, there are thoughts that, yeah, we might emerge from lockdown and emerge from isolation, all this stuff, and, and that the, uh, the virus might have a resurgence. There, there are worries that this might come in several waves. 
um, which might make things really dicey for a year or two. But we don't know. I mean, it, when, when we don't know, I think the, the average intelligent person tends to go to, you know, everything is screwed, like <laughs> it's over, we go to worst case scenario, but that, that's, that's not necessarily the outcome. You know, I think we should, we should hope for the best. And I also hope that they, you know, they make a quick advancements on, you know, medically dealing with this epidemic and, and helping us get something that can, you know, can treat us and uh, whether it's a vaccine or whatever, uh, that we can get back to normal life sooner than later. Yep. Absolutely. You planning on updating the song, you avoid parties for a quarantine version? <laughs> it wouldn't be the worst idea. <laughs> it wouldn't be the worst idea at all. Yeah. So, so you, you're in France now. So mm -hmm. how, how, how stressful was that trying to get back there from the States after you had to cancel all of your dates and South by Southwest and all that? Extremely. Well, first of all, the, the weird thing is, is that, you know, I, I came, uh, I did this U S tour recently and, um, as it happens, my passport was up for renewal. So I sent it off for renewal. Um, I use a, a visa and passport services company in LA called global access and uh, that, that does stuff for the music biz. And uh, because I also was planning on doing some traveling later this year where you need six months validity on your passport to get the visa and blah, blah, blah. So just let's get the renewal over with. Yeah. Uh, so I had no passport. So I had no choice. I just carried on. Um, I played up until the 15th, which was uh, a week ago Sunday. Um, it's 10 days ago now as we're speaking. Uh, I played in Houston. It was very strange. That was the last show I did. Um, I played in this huge church. It was absolutely wonderful. There were, you know, 25 people there, um, much less than the number of tickets sold. Um, but people just didn't feel safe. And I was like, wow, I, I don't even know if I feel good about doing this, but people were really asking me to, to do it. And so I did it. I woke up Monday morning in Houston uh, at 730 bolt upright uh with a voice in my head that said you gotta go and you know i uh, realized that things were moving much more rapidly you know as this is an exponential curve uh it really started to shoot up in terms of infections and the reactions to those infections globally so uh i sent an email to the passport company in la and said hold it there I'm coming to you guys because my normal plan would have been my passport had been ready on Monday was supposed to be ready on that Monday and they were going to FedEx it to me and I was going to fly out the next day. I was going to cancel, you know, South by was just falling apart. It was done. It was over. Right. Um, but I got on a plane that Monday morning, flew to LA, picked up the passport, uh, found a flight to Paris, flew to Paris. I, I landed at 11 o'clock on Tuesday, the 17th of March, they closed the border at noon. And that was it. Since then, we've been in lockdown, borders are sealed. So I really just squeaked in. I was very lucky. Yeah, all those things. I mean, like, it's crazy that I, you know, that that pa the passport was actually ready that day, etc. Um, how many how many miles did you fly in one day then? A lot. Uh, what Houston <laughs> to LA is, yeah. I have to look but um, yeah, the good thing is, is I had United miles to get to 
to get out of Houston. So that didn't really cost me anything, but the the flight from LA to Paris being the last one with hundreds of people trying to get on that flight right after I booked it um, was a little daunting. It was an A380, so you know the big double-decker plane, it was yeah. full. Um, but whatever, I mean, like, uh, I got there and I'm really glad because, you know, being here with my family, uh, and my studio is, you know, I, I think it'd be very difficult. I mean, I, my heart goes out to people who are alone, you know, cause that was my plan B. My plan B was to go to my, maybe my Seattle studio and just park myself there by myself without even a kitchen and try and live there for what, two months, you know, like that would have been pretty intense. Crazy. Crazy. Uh, you know, with this whole situation, I've been listening to uh squirrel versus snake a lot lately. Mm. Used to not be a big fan of political type songs, but I think over the last several years I've embraced more of them. I tell people that I think maybe, maybe I didn't like political songs back in the day because I wasn't pissed off enough. <laughs> and I think that I'm just really angry these days with everything that's going on. I mean, um, you know, I'm, I'm in the, the financial services field, so I'm, I'm constantly watching the markets and seeing what it's doing. And, um, you know, the markets are definitely responding to everything that, um, you know, the, 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 the folks at the white house are, are seeing they're going to be more political songs on on this next Posey's record. Uh, not like the last one. Yeah, I, you know, I I think it, we we went much more personal. I mean, you know, what what counts as a political song? It's very interesting because um, when you let's put, for example, when you say something on social media, public social media like Twitter, and you just make a, a passionate uh, espousal of some principle. No naming names, no cutting anyone down, no saying, you know, anti-Trump, anti-whatever. Uh, people come after you yep. right away. Um, and so this is something that's, that's very strange. I, I, I feel like we are like a lot of lost sheep in a way, and we... That, that people in general have, have nowhere to go with their frustration. They know they're being taken advantage of, um, and they know that they're being manipulated, and they don't really know what to do with it. Um, some of those people adhere to Trump, and some of those people move progressive, depending on where they feel that manipulation is coming from. And, and they're all wrong, in a sense, you know. Basically, everybody uh, is an effing liar. Is that what? Perhaps, you're yeah. So, I mean, when you when you look at a song like "Squirrel versus Snake," there's very little in it that's that's topical, and yet, uh, when that song came out, you know, four years ago, a lot of people reacted to it. Um, it, it just shows you that that people are tense, anxious. Uh, they don't know where they fit in. They don't know where things are going, and and you know. Political would be taking a stance like, okay, you know, I want Trump out of the office. Um, right. I do. I'm just going to let you know that. I don't think he's the man for the job by any means. Um, and, 
But, uh, and I'm sorry if anyone disagrees with me, but I'm also not sorry. You have the right to think what you think, and I have the right to think what I think. Um, we're all in agreement here. On we're this we're in agreement. We're on. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing. There's nothing in Squirrel versus Snake that 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 draws a side along the lines of of uh, like you know Democrat versus Republican yeah. or anything like yeah. that. Um, it's just about saying that that of course we're being manipulated. Of course we are. So that's all it is. We're, we're entering a kind of surreality where it's very hard to know. Uh, where it's very hard to know the truth. did I, I definitely a lot of um you guys contemplating the grand design of life considering that uh you know there were a few songs that i that i think you even said that were written about darius and his passing yes which happened during the making of the album right and i feel I, that that record just still resonates to me i i i listened to it a couple times this week in in preparation of having you on and it just really resonates. It's it's amazing how uh, you can go back to a record from a couple of years ago and it still hits hits close to home. Wow, amazing! Thank you. We're we're both uh, pretty big unapologetic uh, Posies fans. Uh, Absolutely, to be honest with you. I mean, that's that's a big part of our landscape and going to your shows and listening to your albums. So you don't like the song "Apology"? <laughs> no, I love. I, <laughs> I love uh, I love all of uh, not all of your songs. Uh, there's certainly probably songs I don't love um, if I'm being honest, but uh, um, I don't know which ones. As long as they're John songs, they're probably, I'm they're fine probably all John songs. <laughs> if we're being yes, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I, I just uh, you know I appreciate the the same things about what you guys seem to bring to that last album. Just it, it seemed very intensely personal, and it, it seemed like it was coming from a place that uh, uh, it was really interesting to hear that in the music. So. Oh, cool. Well, thank you. And, you know, um, we, we're working on a new record now. Yes. And it's actually in the mixing stages now. And I think it's what's cool is that I felt like, yeah, that last record was, was very personal, especially because of what we went through uh, with Darius during the making of it. Um, and yet, I think, like, the new record is actually a little bit deeper, you know, I think it, you actually get closer to us in the new record. Well, that, that's good. Have to hear. fun. That's, that's exciting. When is mm -hmm. that expected? Well, uh, you know, at this point, um, what's really cool, and I'll, you know, break this story here. I don't think we've mentioned it anywhere else, but uh, Chris Walla is mixing it right now. Oh, cool. From a, yeah, great guy uh, and someone we've known for a long time and someone from our hometown. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we're both like, you know, normally with a mix, you know, he sends, like we get a, you know, somebody mixes, we get 
we make comments, we turn that around in a day, blah, blah, blah. We're all like, yeah, we'll comment on that in a couple of days. Let's just listen to it. I mean, nobody's in a hurry right now. That's maybe one of the silver linings of the peculiar period that we're in. Uh, and I'm only saying that because I know that I'm very lucky that I'm not living paycheck to paycheck. And I, and I want to say that I really feel for people who are living paycheck to paycheck and that we need to take care of those people yeah. in this situation. Um, it's just that I'm lucky enough not to, to be that way. And I'm say, looking at the silver lining because it's difficult for all of us uh, to say that, yes, I've got time to take with my music. And hey, if, if I want to spend a couple of days listening to a mix and thinking about it, I can. Um, but I don't want to be flipping about that with people who don't have anything like the luxury of time that I have. Yeah, I've actually been, um, you know, at the at the outros of our episodes, I, I tell people to go buy a record. And um, mm -hmm. now I'm really putting my mouth where my where my money is. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, I've I, I know of a couple of musicians who were putting out records right around this time that are, I'm sure, are just losing it. In the you know they're thinking mm -hmm. that they're going to 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 go on tour and sell all these records and sell all the t-shirts that they printed out and well let's not get get carried away but I, I know what you mean yeah but 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 so I'm I, I I've been I've been purchasing more records the last couple of weeks just because I know um, they they could use a few bucks their way so no it's totally true I have to say that uh, you know. I've just been on tour since last September um, playing my album Touched, which uh, is an old album of mine that, that was released on September 11th, 2001. So I've been, you know, and I think you guys, at least one of you saw the show on, in Orlando last year. That was me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, so I've kind of been down this road before as far as like, um, having, you know, all my ducks and I know what it feels like. I don't, my, you know, having all your ducks lined up in a row and you got the label and you got the promo and you got the videos and you got all the stuff ready. And then the world comes along and, and, you know, people's attentions are elsewhere for, you know, for a good reason, for something you can't argue with. Yeah. Um, yeah, the um, you know the, the great thing about it is is that I do think it's things like music, and for me, you know, the plug I would put in is also a, a huge part of my circle is our, our stand up comics, and it's the same thing. Their gigs mm. are being canceled, so you know, if people go and and take an opportunity to download their stuff on iTunes as well, if you've got the extra the money, but it's it's music and it's comedy and it's some of these things that that I think uh, you know we'll be able to turn to a little bit to to get some sort of normalcy back anyway. Um, yeah. That's the hope. Um, I know it's what I'm. We want a little continuity yeah. in this time. I mean, like things are really disrupted. Um, music, movies, comedy, books. I mean, it's funny. You know, I, I think it's actually quite fascinating in that uh, music, you know, has been kind of durable. I mean, it's the most vulnerable thing in the art economy. It's the thing that everybody's like, music. Why would I ever pay for that? You know, like. <laughs> Um, and yet like so far, and I'm touching wood, you know, uh, I've got things to do in my studio, you know, like I can still work. I'm home where I have my workspace and I can still work. I don't have to go somewhere 
to work. And I'm really grateful for that because um, it's definitely helping. But also from a listening point of view, of course, you know, like everybody's hungry for comfort. You know, everybody's scared. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A couple, couple other things before we jump into the record that uh, we're, we're going to mm-hmm. talk about. So, um, so I saw you a couple of years ago. Uh, I flew up to Atlanta to see you guys at the city winery. And mm-hmm. so between the VIP and the main show, I got to see you guys do eight songs from Deer 23, which I know, oh, wow. which I know in the past you guys haven't been totally a, f- a huge fan of that record. So I was super happy that you guys played that many songs. I guess knowing that many of your fans uh, love that record, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we bought the the you know the the remaster and deluxe editions that you guys put out. You guys embracing those those songs a little more than you have maybe in the past? Uh, definitely. I, I would say that um, I think we made a mistake along the way a little bit. Um, I think that we were a little bit fatalistic and impatient about how we mixed it. Um, and, you know, at John Leckie was great to work with. Loved the guy. Extremely talented. Um, maybe we should have been more critical of the mixes and kind of worked that down. But I think there's really something like listening to the remasters. It's a very different record. And I have to say that, um, Stephen Markison who mastered that record is one of the biggest names in mastering. I mean, he works with the stones. He works with, you know, he is not a slouch. He's not, he's not a hack. Um, I just think that, in 1990, there was a peculiar technical moment uh, where the art of transferring from analog uh, recording to CDs was not quite perfected. And I think that original mastering fell short of the mark of representing the final product. it's really weird because the remastering sounds fantastic. It's a very different record. It's less murky. It's it's tighter. It has more impact. Um, I think the songs are, are really good, and we, we still do play some of those songs from time to time live. We have all the way through, but uh, I have less... I really don't have any misgivings about the record now. Um, I'm giving myself a break for the fact that it was made by a band that had never toured. That's the only thing I could say would would have made that record better. Yeah. We hadn't we were just too green. We had we'd never been on the road before. I think that would have made a tighter album if we had been through that experience. That was uh that was my introduction to the Posies was actually in the backseat of Ben's car. That sounds dirtier than I intended it. Um Wow. Just- well, congratulations. <laughs> was that prom night, guys? No, it was not. <laughs> No, I was Ben's a few years older than me. I think you guys are about the same age. It's you're not helping. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow, thanks, Jeff. You're really making me sound creepy. Appreciate so, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was a, I was a sophomore in high school, and I would always kind of tool along with him and his buddies. And and he was playing the Derek Twenty Three cassette. And I was it was right away just mesmerized by it. Absolutely mesmerized. Wow. And um, hadn't hadn't heard failure and. So that was the first introduction that I had to it, and and that's the album that I definitely latched on to. Uh, I remember I, I actually inter- interviewed you uh, and John separately for CDReviews.com back in 2005, uh, and both of you, mm-hmm. when I told you it was my favorite album, you both kind of had this reaction of like, oh, really? 
and his was frosting and yours i think was uh, amazing disgrace and and uh you know it, it's just it's interesting to hear how everybody connects to everything but uh that definitely is an album that that has a a, a big part of you know adolescent high school memory for me in terms of really becoming a Posies fan so oh that's fantastic i i think also the the thing that colors it for myself or maybe for john i can't speak for him but uh is that you know we were young and we were uh, you know still well, we were insecure i mean we we were still we were we were thrown into a a, a very intense situation of being you know barely out of our teens and getting a big record deal and having all these expectations and I think that those expectations that we made on ourselves were so high that 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 Dear 23 couldn't possibly have met them you know so we felt and we and it wasn't a hit record either so I think we felt self-conscious about that but but we've forgiven ourselves, I think, since then. There was such a great introduction to like the interesting, the the really sly turns of phrase and the the wording and the songwriting, though, that I, I think shows up on on the later albums as well. That there's so much cleverness, uh, uh, you know, kind of stoked throughout it. That it it was pretty obvious that there was a real, um, I don't know, either a connection between you two and the way that you wrote, or just your ability to kind of uh, create something more than just an average pop song. I th I think it would have been hard for us to tell that at the time, but um, I, I think that yeah, I, I think giving us giving ourselves a little credit in hindsight and considering that that where we've been since then, I think we should have given us. I think if we'd felt more, even if we'd felt more confident at the time, I think we would. You know, I mean, you could you could view things a number of different ways. A lot of well. Let's skip ahead in a way to say that a lot of people look at the Posey's story as a tragedy um, because we could have been, should have been, blah, blah, blah. Um, and this is a band that, that, you know, we sold half a million records. I think I'm okay with that. I, I'm very grateful for the opportunities I've had, and I, and I don't think we, we, we failed in the end. Um, I think that we, that we went with something that's pretty brainy and literate, and kind of a hard sell to the general public um, when you when, you know when you're thinking about our contemporaries at the time you know um, in certain ways uh, and we we made some inroads and I think that's totally cool I'm good with it I'm good with our legacy. Are you guys able to look back at all on that point in time and obviously Seattle and what happened with Seattle and and have any sort of uh, reflectiveness about? you know, what, what that era and, and the things going on around how that affected your career or if things have been different or does any of that sort of stuff come to mind or it, with the, you know, the ability of hindsight? Sure. I, I think like if we looking at who we were, which were these two very naive kids, basically high school kids from a small town. Um, if we had, washed up on the shore of the nearest city and that city had been anything else, you know, Chicago, Denver, New York, Washington, Atlanta, we would never, you'd never hear from us. We were very lucky in that we happened to move to the nearest city that was you know, to us from where we were, from where we grew up, from our small town 
It happened to be Seattle. And two years after I moved to Seattle, for example, because I was, I, I, I left our hometown first to go to university. Um, it just happened that Seattle became the biggest music scene in the world. It wasn't a, it wasn't a move on our part. It wasn't an, it wasn't something we did out of ambition. Like, Oh, Seattle is so hot. We're going to go there. Seattle was an absolute backwater, uh, when we were growing up. And when we moved, when I moved there in 1986, there was, there was nothing going on. Like it was never going to be a cool place. Minneapolis was cool and, and blah, blah, blah. New York, LA to some degree. So it was pure happenstance. Um, but if, if, if we hadn't been living near Seattle, we never would have made the progress we did. We were very lucky. All right. A couple more questions and then we're going to talk big star. So what's the latest mm-hmm. with Ken, the movie? Uh, I can see that Claudia, the director, Claudia Rorarius, um, is posting stuff online um, that shows she's still in the editing process. Um, So it's a slow process, but I think she will, you know, I totally trust her. And um, if it takes her two years to sort out a coherent and cool movie from the, you know, 100 plus hours of improvised footage that we shot, I, I think that's totally reasonable. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what she does. I'm looking forward to being completely horrified because I'm not an actor and I (laughs) have to, just as I kind of like reconciled myself by the end of the shooting with like, well, you know, this is really uncomfortable, but I, but I think that's part of the process because you're really putting yourself out there. Uh, I'll have to go through all that again and go like, you know, I hate this and I really don't want to see myself putting myself out there, but hopefully, um, Actually, it doesn't matter if I like it or not. I actually don't care. I really just, um, I did this, you know, I, I gave what I, what I could. And I don't want to disrespect real actors who devote their life to developing the skills that, that, that allow them to, to max, maximize their craft and, and, and pursue their craft. I'm just a guy who plays in, in a band and this wonderful film director who I think is very talented uh, gave me an opportunity to slide in and play a, a part and be an actor and see what that experience is like. And I'm really grateful for it. Um, I hope that it moves people. Um, it's, it'll be an interesting experiment because I know in music, I know how to make you cry. I know how to make you laugh. I know how to you know get you riled up. Um, in, in film, I don't really know how to do that. I had to go based on the, the feedback I was getting from the people around us while we're making the film, like the other actors and the, the crew and the director. So it, it's more of a mystery. Um, but I do like pushing myself out past that edge where I don't know what I'm doing and all I can go go on is instinct. I think it's a great experiment and a great experience. Sure. Hopefully, it's a great film that results. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, and then yesterday we found out that um, Bill Reiflin passed away. So what what were your, yes, Bill Reiflin? Reiflin, what were your experiences yeah. with uh, with playing with him? Because you you played with him in REM. Was there the, and I think he played on one of your solo records as well. Correct. Yes. So, um, 
Bill and I were, you know, Bill was part of REM for, uh, for the last few years that I was involved and even beyond until the band's dissolution. Uh, he was involved in the Minus Five, uh, which is a revolving project that I started with Scott McCoy in the 90s and still continues that. to this day. Yeah. And Bill played on my third solo album, Soft Commands. I posted a song from that today uh, in his honor. Um, and so, yeah, I spent a lot of time on tour with Bill. And um, wow, you know, uh, it's funny because the first thing you think about, of course, you know, because Bill's a musician, we should talk about his musicianship and he was a great player and all the stuff. And he played in influential bands in the Seattle underground uh, going back to the 70s um, and has this amazing history. And he played in ministry and, and all this crazy stuff in the 80s and, uh, you know, played in King Crimson. And, you know, he, he's he, his legacy from a musical point of view is massive. But what I think of when I think of Bill, um, first and foremost, is uh, his sense of humor, which was wonderfully dark. Um, and just, a, you know, he was very dapper, very elegant. Um, you know, by the time I spent a lot of time with him, I think, you know, I, he wasn't really a drug user or anything like that. I mean, I don't know if he ever was, but he, you know, he was a pretty straightforward guy, very even keel, very calm. Um, so it was delightful to see when his sense of humor came out that was, that was incredibly dark and kind of a little bit evil in a wonderful way. Um, and he, so he, he was very intelligent and, uh, you know, he was like a, like a fencer in that sense. You know, he made little parries and stabs, um, but he wasn't mean. He, I wouldn't, I, he, his, his observations were not, were not cruel. Um, he was just funny and dark. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize his resume. Um, cause I didn't listen to KMFDM or ministry. That was a little too industrial for my liking, but the fact that, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't, I had no idea he was in King Crimson. And if you're invited to be in a band with Robert Fripp, who, I acknowledge him as one of the gods of of music out there. Um, that that speaks volumes, I think. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a it's a rarefied uh, upper echelon of players players that we have played in King Crimson. It's a whole different yeah. thing. Pretty amazing. But you know what I said today about Bill. Uh, and what I posted um, this a song of mine that he played on from that solo album. Um, he was absolutely capable of playing the most technical and challenging parts possible. And he was absolutely capable of not playing those, yeah. um, which is rare. You know, I mean, this, you know, people with great musical ability from a technical point of view, um, I can say this having, you know, worked with my bandmate, John, you know, like for John in the early days of our band, John was this absolutely phenomenal um technical player that could play van halen and anything rush whatever could play anything from the age you know of 12 13 and he had to back down from that it was hard for him to to approach music from a non-technical point of view and 
by the time I played with Bill Rieflin, like he could approach music from a non-technical point of view, but apply the technique that, that was ingrained in him. So that's altogether rare. I mean, there's millions of people who come out of whatever uh, music schools and, you know, Percussion Institute of Technology or Berkeley who have these mad skills. Um, but to be able to play with feel and finesse and to, and to turn that technique off when the moment called for, you know, a non-technical moment is not, it's, it's rare. It's not so common. Yeah. Yeah. I was listening to REM's Accelerate today. Um, and he's, he's a total badass on living well as best revenge. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that song is driven by the drums, but yet he could dial it back for, you know, a lot of the other more melodic type songs on that record. So yeah, that's a, that's a sign of a good, good musician is being able to know when to, you know, bust some balls and know when to dial it back. So yeah, I, I saw you guys at, uh, you know, REM at the Hollywood bowl, uh, in like 2003, September 10th, I think of 2003. Oh yeah, sure. That's when I got married. Yeah, That was the thing I was going to say. It was this, it was great because I, you know, I'd be an Posey's fan knowing that you were there, but then Mike, Mike calling you out as you had gotten married, I think the day before or something like that. Uh, we got, we got married on the eighth. Okay. So that, that week. Yeah. Yeah. So there was, I was there for that. It was also the night you did the tribute to Warren Zevon who had passed a couple of days earlier. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then Tony Clifton comes out, uh, to do, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh and, and it turns into a water fight and I've, you know, I, I can't ever find anything real definitive about it, but I assume that that was never part of the plan. Am I right? Is that, uh, yeah, the, no, we didn't even discuss Tony Clifton. It just, he just appeared. He just appeared. All right. Uh, and, and is there any, is there any knowledge of who was Tony Clifton that night or is there? What do you mean? Like, do you, is there, was there, some, uh, was it Andy Kaufman? Tony Clifton. It's just Tony Clifton. Okay. All right. In, in his typical Tony Clifton. It was an amusing thing to, to witness from a sort of a train wreck. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll tell you. Okay. All right. It's Jim Morrison. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Perfect. It just, perfect. It, it was definitely an interesting show. Bum, bum. It was an interesting show to be Yeah. In. So I have a funny, I have a funny story though from that, from that night. Okay, cool. And of course, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm playing the Hollywood Bowl. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, feeling good. Um, just got married. Very happy about that. My wife is there. Really a wonderful moment. Um, <laughs> this is so mean. I'm like the meanest person. So uh, I'm backstage and. I see this gentleman, um, a, you know, a shaved head and, uh, you know, uh, how do I describe, you know, it's, it's bony, thin build. And I'm like, wow, Jeremy Enoch. Now, you guys all know who Jeremy Enoch is, you know, singer from Sunny Day Real Estate, etc. Great yeah. Seattle band. So I'm talking to this guy and then I realize yeah, I don't think it's Jeremy. And I, 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 I was like, um, I was like, kind of, well, you know, what, what, are you, what are you working on? You know, because at that time, Sunny Day was kind of dormant. And this guy took great offense and um, said, what do you mean? 
you know, we're working on a new album, like it's going to be great, blah, blah, blah. And I realize I'm actually talking to uh, the singer of Live. Oh. <laughs> I was thinking it's Jeremy Enoch the whole time. And um, I, as soon as he, he got a little bit pissy with me, I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I thought you were somebody else. And I walked off. <laughs> but I'm a terrible person. I just like that you acknowledged that uh, you thought he was someone else and moved on. That's, that's fantastic. There's a funny story uh, along similar lines from a couple years ago uh, that has to do with Big Star. Um, we were doing a Big Star third show in New York, and we were all flying to New York, uh, including Jody uh, Stevens, drummer of Big Star. And <laughs> he, on our flight to New York, uh, was from Memphis, was Al Green. Cool. Now, there's no mistaking Al Green, no. you know, everybody knows what he looks like and who he is, blah, blah, blah. And Al Green had done quite a bit of work at Ardent Studios where, you know, Jody was the studio manager, etc. Um, so, <laughs> I love this story. You have to know Jody, that, that Jody is one of the, the kindest, most polite and gentle people that's ever walked this earth. So... Jody walked up to Al and said, hey, Al, uh, it's uh, Jody, Jody from Arden, blah, 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 how you doing? And Al Green just gave him this look of like, what do you want? You know, like just didn't even give him the time of day, just, just, just raised one eyebrow and just like stared him down, didn't react. And Jody's standing there with the hand out, you know, so sweet, you know, sweet as pie. And Jody, he goes... I'm sorry, I thought you were somebody else, and he walks off. <laughs> oh, my God. This story kills me. That's great. All right, well, Jeff, you want to do the uh, transition question since uh, you, uh, you, you started this? Uh... Yeah, I started, a, I started a, a little battle between Ben and his, his regular co-host, uh, uh, Wayne, mm -hmm. over, um, over Toto's Africa. Uh, and so the question is... Uh, what? The question is, Toto's Africa, <laughs> good or bad song? Who? <laughs> um, wh why is this even a question? Well, here's the thing. I was listening to one of their episodes, and, and I think they were talking about Weezer's cover, and Wayne we were. expressed a, a, a pretty great amount of distaste for Toto's Africa, and it stunned me because I didn't know that there were people who just didn't like Toto's Africa. It's one of those songs that I Whoa. thought that everybody liked on some level, and so I, he started the question based on that. Just because you like it on some level doesn't mean it's a good song. Well, again, I mean, that... and, and I tend to word the question differently when I, I come on. Is usually, does it does it make you smile when you listen to it? That's 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 different. That's that's a different uh, take on it. So so so, what's your? I, I think about this. You know, as as someone who's you know in 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 lockdown, I'm thinking about like. Uh, I thought about a lot about being in lockdown uh, relevant to what uh, my wife's parents generation went through because her, her mom survived the World War II um, and, and the city was occupied and blah, blah, blah. So I was thinking about like if you were in the Blitz like uh, and you're down in a metro station and, you know, the, the Nazis were bombing overhead and, you know, you're pretty sure that your house was not going to be there when you went back to it. And over the PA came Toto's Africa. Good or bad song? <laughs> 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 I, 
it would. I think it would still make me smile in some way. I don't know. I, I just think it would. I think it would calm me. I think there would be calm that would come if it was Africa were playing. I don't know. I hope I, think I admire you. I'm, I'm hoping I'm never in a situation that I have to put that to the test. <laughs> I, 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 I truly hope that you're never in a situation where you have to put that to a test. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure it would hold up. I, I, I think it was the right song for a certain time. Um, it can be appreciated in different ways. It's not really meaningful at this point. I mean, like, when I sit down with Toto's Africa, as I often do... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't feel like I'm having a, uh, an honest conversation with someone I care about. Yeah. Um, and that's a terrible thing to say. Um, you know, like, it's strange because, you know, like, Strawberry Fields Forever, I mean, you can make some guesses and do a lot of intellectual stuff about what that song's about and you'll still be wrong or I am the walrus or something. And what's weird is when I sit down with those songs, I still feel like I'm having a conversation. There's an attitude, for example, in I Am The Walrus that comes through, even though it's kind of nonsense lyrics. And I still feel like I'm, I'm you know, we're, we're connecting in some place. Whereas Africa, I don't really know what the guy is talking about and I can't. And I can't find a, a way in to say, yeah, I'm part of this too. I get it. I get what you're saying. Um, it's just one of those songs that when it comes on, I just, I, I just can tune off, tune out, thinking about it necessarily, and it just makes me, uh, it just makes me smile for whatever reason. I feel the same way about heroin. I totally get it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's funny because I think Wayne. Wayne brings up the heroin thing quite often when we're talking about uh, right. Toto's Africa. Maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe morphine. I mean, it's one of those things like I'm, 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 you know, it's it's like a medically induced coma. I mean, it, it has its point. I mean, it has a use. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't, I don't feel it's something that's part of. But I understand. I might in a medically induced tom- coma. I hope that I tap my toe. There you go. There you go. All right. All right well, let's, uh, let's transition from Toto to, to big stars. So we're going to talk as one, as one does. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's such a, uh, wonky, uh, transition, but you know, mm-hmm. that's, um, that's, that's our podcast. Um, mm-hmm. so let's talk big star. So how did you, mm-hmm. how did you get introduced to, to big star? Cause, uh, I know you've talked about that they were an influence for you, and we'll talk about how you guys got recruited for for the last incarnation of Big Star. But how did where, where was your introduction to Big Star? Uh, well, probably I, I I'm sure I saw them referenced in uh, record reviews in the 1980s uh, without having any idea what they really were about um, because the records were not available. Yeah. And they weren't a frame of reference at that time. You know, they're, they're a frame of reference for record, for, you know, wonky record reviewers, but that's it, not for the average person. Uh, you know, there was, of course, Alex Chilton by The Replacements, things like this. Um, but I still hadn't heard the records. Um, so I think I really first heard Big Star when the Posies already were out in the world and playing. We released our first album as a cassette. Uh, in 1988, I have that. I started playing. 
live songs at that time. We're talking spring of 1988, uh, at which time three of the four of us worked in record stores. And as soon as we released that album and it became something of a, a viral hit in the Seattle area, um, other people who worked in those record stores approached my bandmates and said, hey, if this is what you guys are into, this is what you need. This is the, this is these, this is the band that will change your life. And as it happens, uh, those albums were just being released on CD, you know, like 1988, when we released our album was kind of the beginning of the, of LPs moving to CDs, like CDs were taking, were becoming the dominant form. This is really in the infancy of the CD era. Um, and, but those albums got released. And so we, we heard them, early on and fell in love yeah and then how did you guys get recruited to be a part of big star well because that's normal i mean if you listen to a band a few times you're probably gonna end up joining it (laughs) (laughs) i mean i remember watching leno i had i had a roommate that watched every night and Uh and and you know jay said hey big star is coming on and i'm like what okay now i finally get to see who this Alex Chilton character is that Paul Westerberg yeah. talks about in in his in his song, and then you guys start performing. I'm like, those two guys look a l- awful lot like John and Ken, and I had no wow. and, and I had no idea until many years mm-hmm. later that that actually was you two, um, because you know this was what ninety. 95? Yeah, exactly. 94. So that was years before. October of 94. So that's years before the internet and where you could look up anything. So, you know, I had seen you guys at Endfest like two years before. 92, yeah. Yeah, yeah, two years Mm -hmm. before. And I'm like, it really looks like Ken and John. And I didn't find out until, you know, probably five, six, seven years later that that actually was the two of you so so did alex just go hey these guys sound like um what we sounded like in big star back in the day or how, how did that come about uh, well we you know when those uh, older record store guys kindly took us under their wing to you know hip us to big star and those records came out uh and we heard them you know it was definitely love at first sight uh or love at first listen whatever you want to say yeah. Um, and they became our favorite band. So, you know, in 1989, as we were doing our, you know, regional shows uh, in the Northwest and going down the West Coast for the first time, uh, you know, Big Star was on the soundtrack. 1990, um, we recorded a, a version of Big Star's song Feel uh, from Number One Record, and we recorded a version of Chris Bell's I'm the Cosmos, which had only been released as a limited, fairly limited edition, seven inch single in the seventies, but survived as a kind of uh, tape trading thing. And later was released as a, you know, on his solo album, it was released as a CD, but it had been sitting in the can for a decade plus. But we, uh, you know, and, you know, we toured that in 1990 for our second album, uh, including uh, opening for the replacements for a month or so, where we only played you know ten songs a night as an opening act, and you know we had we played Feel and I'm the Cosmos every night, like we were really into it, um, and that 
what can I say? You know, we we looked into recording uh, Dear 23 uh, at our sec our first major label album. We could do whatever we want uh, at Ardent because of Big Star, yeah. um, and found out that Jody Stevens, Big Star's drummer, was still working there, and we couldn't believe it. Like it, it was so strange. You know, we reached out to the studio, got a brochure back because this is pre-internet days, and. Uh, Jody signed the cover letter like Jody Stevens he works there he still works at the studio um how bizarre and um that we didn't end up working there but we we stayed in touch with Jody and he became a friend and a fan we met him while we were on tour for that album so that 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 got us on his radar so it was really probably Jody in the end who uh advocated for us to be part of um, the very fluky Big Star reunion that happened in 1993, yeah. wherein uh, you know people had been interested in having Big Star reform, and they they offered money and opportunities, and Alex, you know, had shrugged it off, like not really his thing, not really interested. Um, and Jody had gotten into a routine where you know people would he's findable there at Arden, um, he would you know, pass on the request to Alex. Alex would say, no thanks, and they would move on. And these college radio DJs in Columbia, Missouri, came up with the idea for their the Spring Fling concert at the University of Missouri in, in Columbia in 93 that, that Big Star should reform. Completely improbable idea. And they tracked down Jody and said, what do you think? And Jody said, well, I'll pass it on to Alex. Jody thinking, well, Alex is just going to say no, and this is just a formality. And Alex said, yeah, sure, why not? All of a sudden, holy crap, what are we going to do? Like, Alex actually wants to do this. So that, you know, Chris Bell had died in the 70s. Right. He was no longer going to be part of it. And Andy Hummel, the bass player, uh was out of music. He he said, "I'm not, you know, I'm out of, I'm not playing in bands anymore. I'm I'm done." Uh, so you had Alex and Jody, who had the last incarnation of Big Star is what made Big Star's third album, which is a magical record. I, I advise everyone to go listen to it as soon as they are done with listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, and so we can say that Big Star picked up where that record left off. So with Alex and Jody. Um, and no one else. So how do you make a show? Um, and so different people were proposed and talked about and 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 talked to. Um, and in the end, it, it kind of came down to John and I, who were not in that category of people like uh, Paul Westerberg, uh, uh, Matthew Sweet, etc., who had been asked and said, "It's too huge. I, I, I'm. I don't think I could do. I don't think I could do it justice." Um, and we weren't, we weren't famous enough to be too busy. So we were available and we were naive enough to think we're not going to, we're not going to screw it up. We can't do a bad job. We're just going to do it. We, we, we want, we love this so much. There's no way we can do a bad job. I was just going to ask, were you guys young and innocent enough that you're like, yeah, we can do this. Yeah, exactly. I think it was total naivete and that's, that's uh, what got us through. And I, I highly advocate that as a lifestyle choice. You know, I think you should always, when you get an opportunity, I, I, I think you should say yes, because whatever. I mean, if you can't find a way to rise to the occasion, unless it's brain surgery on a loved one, um, 
you know, in, in, in the arts, I think you should just go for it. Right. Right. All right. Well, um, one thing that we do on the podcast is we, uh, we look at the records as it, uh, pertains to the Rolling Stone top 500 albums of all time. And, uh, this came in at number 434. That's way too low. Way too low. Agreed. Um, guys want to know what's right above it? So um, in, in Utero is number 435. However, 433 is George Harrison's All Things Must Pass, which is a, which is a great album. That has uh, My Sweet Lord and What Is Life. Brian, mm-hmm. Brian Eno's Here Come the Warm Jets, 432. I've, I don't think I've ever listened to that. It's a great record. Yeah. Uh, 431 is Stories from the City from PJ Harvey. Also a great record. And 430 is Vampire Weekend's first record. Also not a great record. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wait, did I say that? I'm sorry. No, no, no. So so, so anyways, that gives you a little context. But yeah, in the 400s. Um, well, I mean, you know, I, the, the thing about the Rolling Stone list is I'm glad they're there and we can okay boomer those lists all we want. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So let's, but I, I'm glad they're there yeah. and I, and, um, you know, all the records they just listed, I'm not really going to advocate for the Vampire Weekend record as a, as one of the greatest records of all time. I'm sorry, but, um, but that might be my age showing. Um, but yeah, those are, those are good choices. All right. So as a reminder, our scoring is going to be based on number of songs on the record. Jeff, how many songs on this record? 12, which means our top song is going to get 12 points. Nick's favorite 11 on down to lowest score of one. And yes, before you even say it, Ken, our scoring system, we know it's unfair. It's screwed. It's horrible (laughs) for a record like this, but yeah, anyway, yeah. Uh, wouldn't be an episode with. I'm just glad you didn't make me do a John Hour's solo record and make me give it all ones, but um, <laughs> but I digress. Oh boy! Uh, w- one of these days we are going to do we're we're going to do episode, and that's generous, by the way. <laughs> I'm making a concession by giving any song a one. There you go. There you go. All right, let's start this off. This is a title or not not title song. This is first song on the record. This is feel. Chris Bell song. Um, I found it interesting that the sequencing of the record alternates between Alex songs and Chris songs. 
and with a, with an Andy Hummel song thrown in there for good measure. Um, was that kind of the concessions that they made, considering that they were the primary songwriters? I guess so. It's funny because they they really tried uh, and 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 failed spectacularly at at merging themselves. You know, they they made this common writing credit, um, and they wanted to go in into this as a Lennon McCartney. Yeah. Um, but you know, Chris and Alex, they're really different people. <laughs> I didn't know Chris Bell. He died when I was ten, but. Yeah. Um, you know, their personalities are so different. Um, and I, I, it, it's noble that they tried to, to, to go into this as a, you know, all for one, one for all kind of thing, but it was doomed from the start. Let's be honest. Well, that's the interesting thing listening to it is that, uh, I, I didn't pay much attention <clears throat> to my scoring until after I got done and realized I, I definitely am more partial to the Alex songs for the most part. Um, and I do think in comparison to what you guys have done, say, in the posies, I don't notice it as uh, as much where I don't notice if a sequence is bouncing back and forth so much. You guys blend um, a lot better, I think, than these two do uh, in that respect. I mean, it doesn't feel like completely different sty- styles from song to song quite the same way, I guess. I think you're right. I, th- I think John and I were, were, were much more similar and, you know... We we developed together, you know, the, the bands that we, we were in bands all the way through high school, um, whereas, uh, you know, Big Star has its roots in bands that Chris had um, and Alex, you know, had, was doing his own thing. He, of course, you know, we all know that he'd been in the box tops and achieved great fame as a high schooler. He'd already done like a, a solo record and other things that didn't get released at that time. So he kind of came into this project. I mean, feel there are versions of feel that that predate Big Star. Oh, okay. Did not know that. But yeah, the ice water and and these kind of things that you know the the pre the, the pre Big Star bands that Alex wasn't even involved with. Uh, even this recorded version of feel was kicked around by those bands. Gotcha. So there's a little more of a construct to this record uh, than you might think. I do like this uh, a lot as a start to the album. I do think it kicks it mm-hmm. off nicely. I, I, I've always really liked this song a lot. Um, I, uh, I saw the Big Stars third at the Alex Theater when you guys did it here in, mm-hmm. in L.A. in Glendale. Uh, you did a version of this that was fantastic for that. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so that uh, I do. Uh, this is probably my favorite of Chris's songs. Um, overall so for whatever that's worth well and it's funny because we will get to a point were we to continue on and discuss radio city about what's a chris song right um being that chris isn't on radio city and yet his his imprint is felt on several of the songs that were probably started by chris yeah yeah um, but, but it's funny. Yeah. Cause I can remember like it was yesterday. Uh, the first time we got a big star CD, um, which was easier to get at that point than the vinyls, uh, when, when they got reissued by the big beat label and hearing feel for the first time. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff from the seventies. I, I keep coming back to this. Um, 
there's a lot of stuff in the 70s and 60s that are, you know, supposed to be these lost classics. Um, and they're, they're kind of unfinished sculptures in a sense. They're not, they're not very clear. They're not recorded that well. They're garagey. Um, and I'm not, I'm not talking about something like uh, the Zombies Odyssey and Oracle. I mean, that's a masterpiece recorded at a great studio, blah, blah, blah. But it, that was a hit record, like eventually, even though it had a little bit of a defrayed release. But a lot of the stuff that you're given is like a, like an underground gem work, you know, they're kind of, you know, under, they're kind of crummy sounding underground, you know, like not really realized. And when we heard this record, the first thing you hear and feel, are, are, it's like rocking, but the recording is just so crystal clear. You know, it's so, it's so, it stands head and shoulders above so much of the productions of 1971, 1972. So one thing I have to add to the discussion of this record is that John Fry, uh, rest in peace, uh, who, you know, owned the studio and who had a hand in recording and mixing this album, of course, uh, is an important part of the equation because he was an absolutely phenomenal engineer. Anything on the lyrics that we want to talk about or pretty just straightforward lyrics? It's Zeppelin. Yeah. I think, I think, I think Chris, you know, they talk about Chris's Beatles envy, but I think Chris had a serious Zeppelin envy. I, I really do. Um, I think there's a lot of that in Chris's stuff that, that, that people don't acknowledge. Was that about the time that uh, two and three were getting mixed? of Led Zeppelin were getting mixed at Arden? Uh, well, three was, was uh, worked on at Arden. Three was, okay. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, I mean, that was a little, bit, a little bit earlier, but, you know, they were working on it in 19, early 1970. Yeah. But, but, yeah, he would have been, he would have been aware of, of, of that, of course. Terry Manning, of course, you know, had somehow befriended uh, Jimmy Page and and when Led Zeppelin basically Led Zeppelin got ahead of themselves and their tour got booked and they were still working on the record and they needed a, they were still working on the record during the tour and so on tour stops uh, they reached out to Terry to work on that record at Ardent um, which is a big coup for them um, but that was earlier but Terry Manning of course is a big part of a uh, number one record as well yeah Let's get some scores. Move on. Basically, basically, uh, I just have to say that that the, a lot of about this record is that um, this record is kind of like a club of young kids that were given the key to Ardent Studios. That uh, that their peer John Fry, who was the same age as them, uh, you know, had started this really intense and professional studio. Uh, he did come from some money, so um, there helps. was that. But basically, all these kids, you know, went there and, and you know, they had the keys to the place. So so Chris, Terry, Jody was just kind of part of that scene, but he wasn't, you know, but he was just, a, you know, the drummer that had been in some things in town, yeah. et cetera. But they were just part of that scene, and that's how this record happened. Very cool. All right, let's get some scores. Uh, this is my seven. Jeff, uh, this is my ten. Um, it's my favorite of Chris's songs on here, or the ones that are more him than than uh, uh, you know Alex. So, okay. And then Ken, how about your score? 
I gave this a seven because, and, and for reasons um, that we'll discuss as we go to the higher scored songs. Sounds good. All right, next song, Ballad of El Gudo. Say it right, because I probably yeah. get it wrong forever. I think you got it. All right, uh, this is an Alex song. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots, lots of covers out there in the universe of this song. Uh, anyone got a favorite of the covers? And you can't say um, Ken and John. Can't. Say <laughs> <that>. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I love love this song, but as far as the covers, uh, I. One of the first places I heard this is probably the Evan Dando version on the Empire Records soundtrack. Um, yeah. I liked the movie and the soundtrack a lot at the time. It was just the age I was at. And uh, so I, I liked that one quite a bit. Um, I did find a version that I didn't care for much by the Boswells, which apparently features Dean Dinning of Toad Wet's Brocket. I, I thought was really mm. not good. It was, <laughs> I, I didn't think it was good. So okay. my apologies to Dean. Uh, we, we still love you, Dean. Yeah. As the uh, as the token French person here, I have to say, uh, um, in terms of just chutzpah, I have to give it up for Vanessa Paradis, who's who recorded a live version of this. Oh, I don't know if the ex girlfriend of Johnny Depp. Yeah. Okay. I like I the Counting Crows. I like the Counting Crows version. I think Adam Duritz's vocals make make that song very much kind of his own song. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's, it's good. What do you guys have to say about this, as far as lyrically, why this, why this song is one of those songs that everybody seems to want to cover? This is uh, my this is my favorite song on the album. I think it. I feel like I, I'm supposed to have a different song as my favorite, but it's kind of a one A one B scenario for me. But this is one of those songs that. Uh, I have I have a handful of songs that I don't leave the car when it's playing. If I pull into a place, I let it finish. And yeah. this is one of those songs. Another song, uh, and this is not sucking up, but it's Flood of Sunshine. That's another song for me that I've, I don't know if it's just my OCD, but that's what I have with this one as well. Where I just I won't I won't get out of the car until the song is over. Uh, I love it. I, I everything about this um, is it's the lyrics. It's the you know, fighting against the odds or doubters lyrics or whatever the, it sort of fits the kind of my personal mantra, the defiance of it's not what other people want, uh, you know, that, that matters. And and there's such a self assured swagger about what he's saying in this. And then, you know, things about reading about it being uh, about the Vietnam war, uh, as well, just make it much more powerful. Um, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's, it's just a great, great song. It's one of my all time favorite songs of any, uh, uh, any band, let alone Big Star. Yeah. Right. I, I agree. And uh, I have to say that there's something really interesting here. Um, 
you know, Alex was a person, uh, you know, and I played in a band with him for 17 years who at different times was kind of hard to know. I mean, he wasn't the most penetrable person. Um, and there's things about Chris Bell when you listen to the solo work of Chris Bell where, my goodness, you know, like he's putting his heart on the line. He's practically like puking out the words. It's so intense. Um, and yet, you know, here, like there's something relatable about this song, which is so strange. This is the magic of music. You don't have to know that this is like a, you know, about the, the draft in Vietnam. You just feel it. You just feel compelled by this story. Everybody who listens to the song, anybody who likes rock music, would feel compelled by this without having to actually know what the song is about. And that's interesting, considering that Alex can be so opaque. Um, it's not about him. I mean, other than, yeah, maybe his draft age or whatever. But it, that he, that's just a good songwriter. Well, I hadn't even read about the Vietnam aspect until, you know, last week when I was just trying to dive into the songs a little heavier and do a little research. And I didn't, it didn't, it colored it a little bit after I, after I read that and it was interesting, but, it, but like you said, it didn't matter. There was just, there's just something that he's saying here that's so relatable uh, that you can feel w whatever that is, that defiance uh, that's there and, and it, it, you can connect to it regardless of whether or not you know the story. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's like it's like your will versus the man in a sense. You know, uh, it could you you could apply that to so many different things. Um, you know, just being your own person, standing up for yourself against any kind of hardship. I mean, that that's that's also a sign of a good song. I mean, it, it's not often you can write one of those. You know, this song has got a specific inspiration, but a general application. And I don't know if there's too many other stanzas that are better than I've been built up and trusted, broke down and busted. And just that finishing it with the hold-ons and goosebumps. Gives me goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get some scores. Because uh, I think we could probably talk two hours just on this, this song. <laughs> um, this is my 10, and I'll tell you why in, in a couple songs. So... Uh, Jeff is 12 and then Ken 12 for me. This is the highlight of the album. If I had to explain this album in one song, this would be it. This would be it. All right. Next song in the street. everybody knows this now as if they're unfamiliar with big star they'll probably know it from the cheap trick cover used as the theme song of the 70s that 70s show um did i read correctly this song was a single is, is that correct mm -hmm. it was? and there are different versions actually um, they put out a few singles from this album, but this one was released as a as a seven inch, not to any great acclaim. But yeah, there are seven inches of this. Gotcha. And this is a Chris song. 
because we just mm-hmm. did an Alex song. A little bit different feel than the, the first two songs. Is this more of a straight up rock song? Um, or were, were they trying to be um, cover all the bases with slower songs, up-tempo songs, rock songs? Um, and what do you guys think about the sequencing of this? Well, I'm sure they argued about it a lot, you know, and uh, to, to arrive to this conclusion, uh, I, it's funny, you know, I, I feel like feel and in the street are like these kind of production tour de forces or tours de force, um, attorneys general, um, that, uh, you know, they, they, They've got great style, but you know they're like at the end they're they're kind of like I don't know feel good rock songs. They're kind of they're not that deep. The total and Africa of big star, if you will. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> they're not that good. Um, I would say they're like the Weezer's Toto's Africa of big star. Um, but, but, you know, like that, that's the thing between, you know, these two songs, feel them in the street, which are, you know, they're great rock tunes. Uh, but Ballad of El Gudo is a folk tune. I think that, that holds up regardless of how you play it. And it doesn't need any production value when it's made into a full band song, like on the record, it's a masterpiece. And feel and in the street would be harder to convey without the production aspects around them. This one was probably dulled a little bit for me because of hearing it as to that 70s show theme song. And and to be honest, um, I think that Cheap Trick's cover of it makes it feel like uh, it it shows you that it's it's an easier not to it's not a knock on Cheap Trick. I like Cheap Trick a lot, but it's it doesn't seem as much of a big star song to me for whatever reason. Um, it does fit so nicely as a, a cheap trick cover. So, and then it's the idea that if you can, it's hard not to compare this with the song that comes after in terms of trying to capture um, a point in life. And this feels like it's trying mm-hmm. to capture like late teens boredom, or you know that whatever that angst is at that point, uh, or ha- you know the hanging out down the street. It, the next song is so much deeper in terms of painting yeah. that picture that it's hard not to compare those two for me. I, I, that's absolutely rings true for me too. Yeah. Let's go back to the Leno performance. This was the song that you guys, uh, guys played on Leno. Mm-hmm. Any, any particular reason why this was chosen as opposed to anything else on the other couple records? Well, Alex, you know, had a pretty limited list of songs that he would do from the three albums. Um, there was a lot of songs he wasn't particularly fond of. And especially, and what's weird is, yeah, this is, this is a Chris song, but this is, there's some things that are very blurry about what's a Chris and Alex song. (laughs) Um, and again, Radio City only compounds that. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, I think to be honest, this is the opening song on our set list for like 20 years or whatever, like the whole time we played together, yeah. 17 years. And I think Alex was just like, yeah, that'll, that's fine. That's a good opener. Yeah. I, I read, yeah, I, whatever. I, 
I read a quote from you. There was there was some some quote from you that basically said that that you'd sat down at some point to talk about a set list at a cafe or something, and you didn't realize that you were literally laying out the set list that you'd be playing for the next what ten years or or whatever it was. True that. Yeah. So when we did our first rehearsals in Seattle, um, we we retreated to a cafe after kind of jamming together a little bit and to work out a set list and. Um, Jody had suggested a certain order, starting with In the Street, and uh, I don't remember what it was anymore, but to be honest. Um, but he laid out that, it's probably how we played, let me just check out the running order on Columbia. Um, because, let me just check that, it's probably the same thing. Yeah, In the Street, Don't Lie to Me, When My Baby's Beside Me. I'm pretty sure that those first three were proposed at that cafe. Because at that time, Jody and Alex had some things that weren't worked out. Uh, because Jody had proposed it, Alex said, yeah, I don't really think that's a very good idea. You know, like, we should try something else. And uh, Jody got a little flustered. And then coming back around it after discussing many possibilities, John came back to the same thing. In the street, don't lie to me, woman, babies beside me. And John suggested it. And uh, Alex said, yeah, that's probably a good idea. I think that's the right way to go. <laughs> this kind of thing. Yeah. Al- Alex and Jody had some mind games to work out uh, when we first started playing together. That, 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 it, it worked itself out over the years, but at the, at the beginning, it, they kind of picked up where they left off and it was a little tense. Right, right. All right, well, let's get some scores on In the Street. So, Ken, your score? I have to admit, I gave this a six. All good, Jeff. Uh, I don't even think it's the best Chris Bell song. I mean, like it's it's the one of the most memorable, but not the best. Yeah. Jeff, your score? I went four on this. Okay, and I'm I've got it as a five, which leads us to next song, which is thirteen. Won't you tell your dad get off my back? Telling what we said about painted black Rock and roll is here to stay Come inside well it's okay Now shake you Ooh. Alex song and Ken I just heard you play this a couple months ago in Orlando Um, Mm -hmm. and um, I just had Skylar Gudaz on the podcast Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago complimented her about her cover that's on that big star third live recording that's probably my favorite cover of that Uh, I think her voice just complements it really well not not to say that you're Version can, but all good, all good, all good. Yeah, she does a wonderful. She has a wonderful job, and she's got a beautiful voice. Yeah. No, no, uh, no foul. And um, have you ever seen? Uh, have you ever seen the long form commercial um, by the French grocery store called Monoprix, uh, um, no. which is spelled with an X on the end? That's based on thirteen. No, no. Is that on YouTube? 
I hope so. Otherwise, I'll sound like a crazy person. Um, I will look for that for sure. It, it's pretty incredible. It's basically they stretched it out um, to a, like a five or six minute film. Wow. Okay. Uh, and, it, and it's absolutely beautiful. I think it's, um, is it this one? Monoprix le film, le drôle de vie? Yeah. So if you go to Monoprix le film, and uh, it's hashtag les drôles la vie, uh, which forget it. I'm not even going to try and just do that. Just search for Monoprix 13. But they made this beautiful four-minute short film based on 13 with the original recording. And it's absolutely, you will cry. It is okay. absolutely tear-jerking. The next question that I had on my notes was, um, like Ballad, what is it about this song that seems to just hit everybody? So so going back to the Orlando show, so I brought two of my friends um, mm -hmm. who weren't super familiar with, with your solo work and weren't super familiar with Big Star, but because I was like, dude, you guys, you guys have to come with me because this is going to be a great show. And... Um, they both mentioned what was that what was that one song that he did towards the end of the of the night um there was there's something about 13 that just like hits everybody when you hear it it's bizarre right i mean uh, it's it's magical it's it's weird it's it's sort of like a little bit like ballad of el Gudo. it's there's something about Alex in that period that, to me, um, really uh, kind of brings in the spirit, even though he was a contemporary, of uh, Roger McGuinn. Mm -hmm. You know, like, th 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 there's something birds-like about it. And, and there, there's, it's like a, a mix of this kind of erudite, folky attitude with a very heartfelt kind of uh, presentation or an erudite folky presentation of a very heartfelt attitude. One of the two. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's elegant, but it's also like it lays that it's very innocent, which is just weird considering Alex was so not innocent <laughs> at that point in his life. <laughs> you know, he'd seen so much. Um, but maybe that's what makes it work too, that, that, you know, he, he, there's a kind of wisdom in it that, that perhaps comes through and he's writing about a subject much younger than him, you know? Right. I, I don't, I don't think there's any other song I've ever heard that better, more perfectly captures just the innocence of early adolescence. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. idea of the way you explore relationships at that age, talking about things that are maybe the most important thing in the world, like mentioning, you know, what they discussed about paint it black. Uh, small mm -hmm. moments are huge. Walking, walking someone home from school is the biggest thing in your world in a way that is captured, you know, so simply, uh, it's just a, it's just this tapestry where you can watch that taking place while you listen to the song and and you know pretty easily jump back into that point in time and remember how momentous little events and little things were the first time you held someone's hand or walked with them or you know and how important it was uh, for you to to um, you know to to be connected in that way yeah. um, and. and the, one of my favorite lines in any song is, is would you be an outlaw for my love? That, that idea mm -hmm. of, uh, 
you know, would you defy your dad or, you know, tell your dad to get off our back? Would you be an outlaw for my love? Is such a cool, that is such a cool line to me. Uh, well, sure. And, and when you're a teenager, like stakes are so high, yeah. you know, every, everything is a little bit larger than life. Just the act of going out, you and know. Some, and and sometimes what would be a silly way, you know, but he expresses it in a way where it, it doesn't, it's not overblown. It just, it's simple. And it's really, really beautiful. Yep. Yep. All right. Let's get some scores on 13. This is, this is my top, top song. This is my favorite big star song, bar none. Uh, Jeff? This, this is my uh, 11. It's, like I said, it's pretty much a 1B for me. It would have, you know, if there's two 12s, this is where it would go. But Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I gave it 11. I think, I think Ballad of El Gudo, just in terms of its arrangement, is a little bit more majestic in a sense but uh in you know this is right behind it the 11 here is should be taken into account that that's a it's a very close 11 yeah, yeah me too yeah all right next song is don't lie to me Bell song. Um, based on the scores, I like this song a little bit more. And I and I really tried uh, to to like poke some holes in this because I saw your guys' scores. And I'm like, am I rating this too high? Because um, there's really not a whole lot of depth lyrically for this. But mm-hmm. I think Jeff kind of goes back to the the way that you're viewing Toto's Africa. This song just makes me feel good. I like it. It just, it's, uh, it's one of those songs where on the record, I look forward to hearing this right after 13. I do too. I, I absolutely do. And, and that's the problem with, with scoring this way is that this is an album for me that I, I think that they're really only, uh, two songs that just don't do a lot for me. And, and the other 10, you know, are yeah. really, it, it's just, a, we've talked before on, on this or you have as well with Wayne about uh, debut albums, you know, and, and impactful debut albums. And this is just absolutely, you know, glorious in terms of a, of a debut. Cause it is so full of great songs. And I like the defiance of don't lie to me. I love the, you know, just the attitude and frankness of it. Um, you know, just, it, it doesn't really pull any punches. Anything on this, Ken? Yeah. So for, for, well, for me, uh, it, it's, it's a great rock song. I love playing it live. I think Alex, when we played it, like really just, uh, again, there's these blurry lines between Alex and Chris, uh, made it his own and put his own attitude into it. Um, 
it's just that in terms, if I'm really thinking from a songwriter's perspective, there are Chris songs that I've rated higher and, and I have more of an allegiance to feel uh, because it's kind of in the same category in a way, you know, maybe it's, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's like bad company or free or something like that. That, that you know, what Alex told me many times that free was one of his favorite bands of all time. It's kind of in that world Having said that, because of its its simplicity, I would gravitate towards feel as being more interesting, right? And in the street is more sing along. So it's it's only by that in intellectual conceit that that don't lie to me like comes in a little bit behind it. But there are Chris songs that were that we still haven't got to uh, that I that I've ranked higher. Okay. All right. Well, this is my nine. Jeff, what's your score? Me too. All right. Um, and this is the India song. So India song. So this is an Andy Hummel song. Um, mm-hmm. I I didn't go look at the other two records to see if Andy had any songwriting credits. Is this is this it, or is his presence, songwriting presence, known on the other couple records? This is unique, and uh, you know, Andy isn't even the bass player on a lot of Radio City. Oh, okay. You know, Radio City was cobbled together from a couple different kinds of sessions. Um, although, no way, he wrote Way Out West. Okay. He wrote Way Out West. But, um, but you know, like uh, the band, the, the Richard, uh, Danny Jones plays bass on three of the songs on Radio City, and Richard Roseborough plays drums on three of the songs, on those three songs. But uh, anyway, yeah, this is, the, I think this is, yeah, this Way Out West is an Andy Hummel composition okay. and a great song. I wish it was on this record. We'd have rated it much higher than the India song, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, collectively this is one of our least favorite songs on the record. Yeah, I just don't I don't quite connect to it. Uh, I, it feels like it's is it is it talking about the Beatles? Is that what it is it talking about their uh, it reminds me of a line from uh, Wayne's World the hanging out with Robbie Shankar phase. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's that's what it reminds me of, and I, I just can't quite figure it out. Well, it's weird. I, I think it sounds like uh, musically to me, it sounds like bread. Mm. To me, it sounds like you know, kind of easy yeah. listening. Um, although there's some very unusual chord changes in it, I actually really like the song. I just um, stacking up against the others, you know, it's one of those things like. What if you're only like 150 IQ and you showed up to dinner with Einstein and Isaac Newton? You'd be like, oh, I'm such an idiot. 
<laughs> I feel like I can relate to whatever scenario you just laid out if I understood it. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, anything we want to talk about lyrically or we, we good? I think we're good. All right. Yeah. This is my two. Jeff? Uh, this is my two as well. And then Ken? This is my three. Yeah. All right. I think I've, you know, I will say that, that playing these songs live will give me, a, you know, and, and taking it apart that way will give me a little more empathy. And so I played this song live um, in the Big Star Third uh, show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you, you have an advantage over us uh, in being a musician to start with and having actually knowledge of these songs. There's an appreciation there that, that Ben and I will never be able to entirely match. Right. Right. Playing in the band does give me a slight ex- advantage. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. I, I'm just pleased that my scores are, are as close as they are so far, not having Ben right. in the band. So. Yeah, I think, yeah. yeah there yeah. we go. All right. Uh, this is When My Baby's Beside Me. is another alex song the bass on this is killer um yeah and jody jody's really good on the drums on this one too this is a great rock song i love it so there's there's a great uh story that um i think is in the some of the interview snippets that turn up in the uh live at the alex theater uh dvd so a big stars third live thank you friends uh, um which i highly recommend uh, we're Mitch Easter. I can't oh, find you can't find it? I can't find it. What? Yeah, I've looked for it. I, I haven't. I, I don't know if I missed the window to order it. And mm. So anyway. Uh, okay, now I'm looking online. Okay, nobody move. <laughs> nobody move. Okay, everybody stay. Shelter in place. We're already done. We're, we're done. done. Okay, good. Done. So uh, thank you, friends. I'm just going to see if it's available. DVD. All that I can never find. And, ooh, you're right. I don't see it there either. Oh, uh, yeah, you're right. All I see is audio CD. Maybe they're not, maybe it's out of print. Yeah. Um, Check iTunes to see if it's available as a film. Oh, Oh, yeah, I'll do that. I'll check that. It's fantastic. So thank you, friends. Big Stars, Third Live, and more. I want to give a shout out to that, which is essentially a tribute to Big Star, but with Jody Stevens, a Big Star involved in the in the band uh, with, jeez, uh, Jeff Tweedy and yeah. Robin Hitchcock and Kronos Quartet uh, doing the string parts and um, Chris Stamey and Mike Mills. Um, so, so Mitch Easter, who would go on to, uh, who was, a, you know, an early, you know, a, a friend of, of Chris Damey's, they, they grew up together in North Carolina. Uh, he remembers hearing 
this song on the radio. It actually was a hit where he lived. Oh, weird. Uh, and he and he and he and he said, "Well, from my point of view, like hearing that song on the radio all the time, I thought this band was, you know, one of the biggest bands in the world." Yeah. So in a, it, it was a regional hit, but my only and and it should have been. It's 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 one of those tunes. It reminds me a little bit of like. Free or bad company, yeah. but in a good way. <laughs> um, uh, where it's 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 got that swagger. It's got the same swagger and the same you know iteration of blues rock into something that's both you know sensually pleasing and not uh, con- not patronizing. It doesn't insult your your intelligence. Yeah, it's a great song. It almost sounds self-aware. It almost sounds like it, it is, you know, aware that it's playing on blues rock tropes. Right. Yeah, and, and it's a great start to the the second side of the of the album. And and uh, it, I, I speaking of the the show, the show at the Alex uh, Jeff Tweedy's version of it is very very good. Uh, I like that a lot. But I'm a big Wilco Homer, so that uh, that right plays into it. Uh, a, st- a stan is that what it is these days? You have to be. You have to stan. What a stan? Stan is. I guess it's like stalker and fan. Oh, like when okay. you're really into something. That's the yeah, word yeah. that people use now. All right. Well. Um, probably, the, but yeah, the, the baseline on, on this song, I have to like shout out, and you know, I didn't play it right for years. It, each couple of years, we'd play this, I'd like update and hear more and more things to it, and that is a real. Um, gift from Andy Hummel. I think it, this is his. This is his time to shine, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. All right. This is my eight, Jeff. My nine, and then Ken. I get this one a ten. Here you go. I think this is the this is the best of the of the rock tunes on the album. Yeah. All right. Next song is "My Life Is Right." This is a Chris song, and this is probably where I will start apologizing for my scores. Because I do love this song, but uh, maybe my score doesn't reflect it. Um, and this, mm. and this, so it's a one, but you love no, the same. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I think for me, so a lot of the songs are very simplistic as we're talking lyrically. And mm-hmm. maybe for this one... I kind of just felt like a, a little bit too simple of you give me life, you are my day, you give me life, and that's right. Very simplistic, very, it's very 70s as far as the, Agreed. the, the lyrics go. Um, so that's probably why I gave it a, a little bit lower score, but I do, I do really dig this song. I love the joyousness of it. And, and it's just such, 
an unashamed ode to someone else. And I do, I think there's something kind of nice about that. Um, it's not, you know, it's not o- overly, it's not attempting to be overly poetic. It just is what it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I am, um, you were in, a secular rocker. You were in the band. We get it. We get it. You were in the right, band. Right. No, got it. Yeah. But, uh, I, you know, but this, this is a Christian rock song. It is an ode to God. Oh. Um, and even with all that, you know, I usually try and keep my spirituality uh, more open. I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not a Pentecostal Christian. I'm not even technically a Christian. I'm, I'm more open to my worldview of spirituality. And I think, you know, the, if we have a creator, it would speak to us in different ways and we sh- blah, 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 blah. So I would normally kind of cringe at anything in the Christian rock category as being too narrow. Um, and yet I love this song. I think, I think his sincerity wins it for me. Okay. I, I, I think that that's really it. And, and you could view it as a love song to a person, uh, but it's not. Yeah. All right. I, didn't I mean, that. Knowing what I have read, you know, read about Chris and what people told me about Chris, it, it is for sure a, a, an ode to to the Creator. Um, but it's it's the thing about Chris, <laughs> I think, is that he is he's so messed up <laughs> and so like on the edge that even he could write a Christian rock song that is like kind of it's going to move you because he's he's so desperate i think for redemption that's how i feel about this tune that's an interesting perspective on it that's uh that changes that changes it for sure the idea of being that desperate for redemption i'm starting to change my opinion of i am the cosmos even that i like it even more now that i know what you're saying about chris right and 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 you know uh there's anecdotal lore that he was, you know, a, a conflicted man in terms of his sexuality and that he had a hard time reconciling that with his spiritual beliefs, uh, which at the time, even then, <laughs> uh, were, you know, not uh, consistent with a gay lifestyle. And that, that left him in a, between uh, a rock and a hard place, so to speak. Um, and that, that, you know, tormented him, you know, uh, and, and so a lot, there's a lot of his work that is in, that is, should be seen through that lens. There you go. I like it. All right. Let's get some scores on this. Ken. Nine. It's the best Chris song. Jeff. For me. Uh, this is my seven. All right. And this is my six and next song. Give me another chance. And weren't we just talking about sincerity on the last 
the last song. So I can't tell if um, Alex's apology is really that sincere in this song. Yeah, it kind of sounds like he did a deal like, okay, lower my child support payments and I'll say I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I'll do it in in a way that's so convincing you'll lower them even more. That's right. But here's what's going to blow your mind. Um, Go to the bridge of the song and then go to the bridge of I'm the Cosmos. Musically, they are identical. Okay, my mind is blown right now. Same chords, just again, is just like, um, never want to take you home, want you so much to say no. It's the same, it's the same song. Wow, custody battle. The one other note that I wrote down here so when the harmony vocals come in around what a minute 45 seconds. Very pet sounds. Very pet sounds. The be all yeah. right or later? Uh, no, I think right th- right at that point. So I'm assuming Chris and Alex were both pet sounds fans, right? Well, I don't know about Chris, but I know Alex had a a big affiliation with the Beach Boys and toured with them and hung out with them and okay. was you know a fan and a friend. Jeff, what, what what do you got on this song? Anything? Well, I don't know. Until I heard you guys talking about it, I thought I knew that it was, I, I, just as the last one seemed to be such an ode to another person, in God in this case, I guess, this is just such an incredibly, it feels to me like such an incredibly earnest attempt uh, at an apology and a plea for forgiveness. I mean, it just it's just everything's out there on the line in it. And I, I really like the don't give up on me so fast. I see it's me that's wrong at last. Give me another chance. And just that pleading. Uh, you know. Which is weird because I just don't associate any of that with Alex. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> again. You know what I mean? Like Alex is more like, he's a tough guy. He's like an outlaw, you know? Like he's he's not really that person that which is so strange you know and but he's capable of these beautiful ideas in song yeah you know yeah, i mean yeah, like just... are you guys familiar with uh, the emi song the witch the emi song mm-hmm. oh it's fantastic it's it's something he recorded um you know in between the box tops and big star um, I, I guess it's also called Smile for Me or something like that. Uh, in my song, Alex. Uh, that's not going to help it. Alex Chilton, the EMI song. Yeah, the, the, the Alex Chilton, the, the EMI song, Smile for Me. It's, it's, it's a very Todd Rundgren uh, song. It, it kind of feel with piano and it's it's uh really earnest um and i just cannot picture alex the person <laughs> you know making an apology d- delivering this message i i can picture his you know he's like coaxing someone to kind of reconcile and kind of work through a a dispute and kind of trying to you know connect to them and it's beautiful and that that's what's so interesting about alex like he's just not Alex, the person was not was not very cuddly um, until the end of his life. Yeah. 
But isn't that something? Um, I can I can I can say that that he that he changed, but but yeah, in the times he's writing these this music, you know, he was a drug user, alcoholic. He had a, a strange relationship with a child that he barely acknowledged, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it was heavy stuff. It was not touchy feely. But isn't isn't that something sometimes about art? Is that you're able to? Aren't you able to sometimes say the things that you wish you could say? Uh, or that you could wish you could be and acknowledge that and then put it into a song like this and wrap it up in a package and go, I know I'm not this, but if I were, maybe this is how I would sound. Is there something to that, do you think? I, I definitely think so. And it's weird because I think, you know, I'm a more integrated person. I like to think I'm a more integrated person in my daily life. And I don't think I could orchestrate that kind of a disconnect, which makes Alex even more interesting to me. Um, although... I have to say that um, that sweet and kind and, and touching person that was within probably in Alex the whole time, um, you know, the, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, like everything else melted away in his life. And by the end of his life, that person was there. He was a really different person. So I guess it was in there all the time. And these songs kind of implied it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get some scores on this, Jeff. Uh, this is my eight. And then Ken is my eight, and this is my four. So this is where I apologize again. Um, all right. Next song is "Try Again." Another Chris song. Um, was it Ken? Was it you, or was it Jeff that talked about bread? Me. I mentioned it in terms of the India song. Yeah, this feels like a bread song to me. Does it not? Mm-hmm. And I do love bread. I have to say, it's. it's I've, I've got the uh, tribute record that uh, you and John both contributed a song to, um, and I'm okay with bread. But yes, I mean, as, as a Chris song, like. I hear his conflicts, but I feel like I'm not, I'm not invited to this. Yeah. You know, this, this, this is another Christian rock song. Um, it's, it's the, Oh Lord is not a, a some kind of convention. It's not a George Harrison. You know, he's actually, he's at, well, and George Harrison is talking to God too. George Harrison wrote spiritual religious songs. Okay. In this case, like it, this is not, an allegory or metaphor he or, or whatever he's just saying oh lord i've been trying and i think that this is when you think about chris's life again from what, what we we're talking about earlier uh this is kind of heavy you know i mean he's he's not he's feeling like a bad person because of who he is um i don't think it's a relationship song i think this is purely a song between him and god and he's feeling bad about the kind of person that he was. Yeah, it's got a lot more context after the things that you've you've said so far. Um, you know, it's it, there does seem to be an 
a pleading, an earnest pleading, uh, and in in context of somebody who maybe doesn't think they're living up to whatever the um, you know uh, the values or beliefs are that they were brought up with or are trying to espouse, it would be a little more sad in that case. Yeah, yeah and, and I think it was a real conflict for him. And what's weird is that like on his solo album, like that all works for me. And it's, and it's so extreme. I mean, like the gut wrenching aspect of the Chris Bell, I'm the Cosmos album song to song is so intense. I mean, it's just like, my God, this guy is like unhinged, you know, but on, on this record where he's trying to stuff it into kind of a nice package in a way, like, I think he's not, he's not all the way there yet. He's like dancing around what he would become, which is a much more, I mean, unfortunately it like, I think it broke him, but, but here it's, it's like neither fish nor fowl. I mean, like it it is this conversation, I believe with God, um, but it's kind of veiled and it's, you know, it's, it's like I'm excluded. I said that before, but that's how I feel. And, and I, I don't think it's, I can't, I don't feel as touched by it as I do his other work on the record. Yeah, I agree. Yep. All right. This is my three, Jeff. Uh, my three as well. And then Ken. My two. Next song, Watch the Sunrise. I can feel it. Now it's time. And looking at our scores, I definitely like this way more than you guys did. Uh, uh, <laughs> this is my 11. I'll just throw that out right now. Wow. I, I love this song. I think it's a beautiful song, too. I feel so bad that I had to rate this lower. But. Yeah, it's just, it's a it's a song of hope, which, you know, again, um, going back to, I guess I'm more pissed off now. Um, this is a song that I... I like to go back to because I feel like it's a, it's a song of, of, of hope and it's look, we're going to watch the sunrise and things are going to be, things are going to be good again. And, um, it, uh, this is a song that just kind of gives me comfort and peace. And, uh, I, I go back to this a lot. I think it's a beautiful song and I hate that we have to rank these I songs. Know, I know, I know. Um, and, and so, you know, there's gotta be a four somewhere, but like, once again, it's, it's so weird for me to think of Alex singing and writing this song, you know, and, and what's interesting to me is that like, the Alex that I knew, you know, the Alex that I met in, you know, 1993, like 21 years after this album came out, had no interest in this song. Like, really? Zero. Like, he, he didn't, I think he, he might have seen all this as fake in a sense. Yeah. Um, but he certainly, 
<laughs> we weren't going to play Watch the Sunrise. It was not going to happen. And I think it's a beautiful arrangement. I think the 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 whole the whole way the song is put together with the harmonica and the you know the kind of tribal drums that happen at a certain point and the big background vocals. I mean, I think it's studio tour de force. Um, and I I'm at pain. I'm it pains me to give this song a lower rating. And, it, and if I would give a much if we could uh, assign uh, identical new rankings to, to multiple songs, I would give the song a much higher rating. Well, we, we uh, often on this podcast do, well, this is my 10 asterisk, or this is my capital 10. Um, so We can't say asterisks now because, you know, he passed away yesterday. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, yeah, I like this a lot. I think the, the harmonies are really great on it. Um, it is an interesting song. But again, based on the context you're providing, it is interesting to me that, uh, you know, it may not actually fit Alex right. uh, as, a, as a person, but... Uh, I do. I like it as well. I like the very hopeful, upbeat kind of quality of it. Um, I like the way it moves. It just doesn't quite. I, the way that you have it ranked over ballad is very uh, troubling to me, Ben. I think that uh, that's <laughs> that's hard for me to imagine. But no, it is a really good song. I, I I enjoy it a lot. No, it's it's good. All right. Well, let's get your your guys' score. So Jeff, uh, mine's a six on this one, and then Ken. Uh, a regretful four. All right. All right. Last song. ST 100 over six. Over six. Yeah. <laughs> and and do we have any idea what the heck that title even means? Um, it's from, it's from a, uh, the readout on a particular piece of recording gear, from what I understand. Okay. Not much to this song. It's what fifty nine seconds long. Um, go go back to what we said about bread. This is totally a bread song. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with bread, uh, but it's yeah. I- interesting choice for a last song to throw. Just like a fifty nine second, what could be perceived as just kind of a demo song. I mean, what was. What was the, the thought process on that? Alex, give you any uh, insight on this? No, and to me, from composition-wise, it sounds totally like a Chris thing. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of those things that existed before Big Star. Oh, and, and I guess we probably need to say this is credited to both Alex and Chris. Right? Right. Yeah. But, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's a Chris song. Yeah, I'm not really sure what to make of it other than I would have liked to have heard the rest of it, I guess. Right. That's kind of where it left right. me. I, I would be curious to know, you know, like, hey, what if they'd have gone somewhere else with this yeah. and finished this song? Yeah, yeah, it's really not a song. It's just so weird that, I mean, they. I, and what's funny, actually, on the early CD editions, uh, of you know, we, we got these CDs that had number one record and Radio City compressed onto one CD. Right. When it first, when those first came out in '89, and this song was gone. 
I mean, this song didn't even exist. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, interesting. So it, it is. It's not much of a song. Yeah. So do I even need to get some scores from you guys? I think we're we're. It's my one. Is it anybody else's more than one? No, it's one. It's as well. one. Yeah. Well, um, this is usually the part where I go, did we cover it? Did we miss anything? I don't think we missed anything, did we? We got pretty in-depth, yeah, I think. Yeah, we, we did. We, we dove into this. All right. Well, when you have someone on that actually played in the band, I know, the album I know, that we're discussing, it's pretty well. You're going to have some insight, which is pretty crazy. I liked it a lot. Um, ultimately, it's a great album, and people should go check it out. This is the point of this podcast is to try and bring up some of these albums that people might have missed, I think. And, and this is an album that if people have not uh, had a chance to dive into, they really should. They should just just check it out. It's such a cool album. It's a great debut, um, and it really stands up well. So. Absolutely. So if you really want to go deep, um, I recommend personally the uh, Keep an Eye on the Sky uh, box set, which kind of you know incorporates the albums plus the demos plus extra tracks plus some live stuff, but it kind of shows you where they began, including the early versions of, uh, well, there's a, there's a pre big star version of try again. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, there's yeah, all, all this stuff. So I, if, if you really want to understand big stars work as a whole, I would get that. Keep an eye on the sky. There's, there's 98 songs on it. Um, and it's fantastic. Gotcha. I have that. I have that. And it's, it is awesome. It's just really, really cool. There's so many alternate mixes and, and demo versions and live. Ver- it's just fantastic. Really, really cool. All right. Well, this is where we uh, look at our top five based on our cumulative score. So there's a two-way tie for the f- our top prize, uh, Ballad of El uh, Goodo and 13. Both got an 11.33 average score. Uh, when my baby's beside me, that's our third choice, fourth feel, and then fifth, my life is right. And you guys, mm. you guys tanked, watch the sunrise just out of the top five for me. <laughs> um, so that barely missed out of our top five, but that's a solid five, right? Yeah. That's a great, yeah. Album. That's really great. I mean, the album is, the, the, I mean, you know, we could debate the various flaws of certain songs. And, and I have to say that even the lower ranked songs for me, like India song, try again, um, are beautifully recorded, have wonderful arrangements. I, it's, they're not like wastes of time by any means. Yeah. yeah. Such a great, such a great record. And I'll echo your, your sentiment, Jeff, that people need to go revisit this record. All right, Ken, this is, this was a lot of fun. I like, yeah, thank you. Thanks thank for you. having me. Thank you, absolutely. Yeah. An absolute blast for me as well. It's just cool to get to hang out and talk to Ken Stringfellow. That's awesome. So thanks for taking the time to do that with us. Yeah, My pleasure. Ken, so um, we threw out a referral question of who do you know that I don't know who'd want to join us on this podcast to revisit one of their favorite records? Um, you know, put in a good word for John for us because we would love to have John on the, on the podcast oh, yeah. as well. You know who I think I just who just popped in my head. Who I think you should if you haven't have if you haven't had him already. Have you guys ever had Steve Wynn? 
Um, so Steve Wynn was Ronnie Barnett's referral. So he's he's working on Steve to come on the show. Steve is now it's a double referral. It's a rare double referral. Double referral. It's only happened twice in history. Love it, <laughs> love it. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll I'll I'll reach out to you and 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 Ronnie both to, to get Steve mm-hmm. on. That'd be great. That would be really really great. All right. So let's wrap this up. So thanks for listening. Please go support the arts. Go to a live show when we're no longer quarantined. Buy a uh-huh. t-shirt of the band. Buy a record. Visit a record store when we're not quarantined. But you can buy a record online. I am proof you can do that. We are Records Revisited, and we are out. out.